Welcome back to Curious Combinations, an Everything's Unoriginal podcast. I'm AF Tanif, and today I'm covering Stranger Things Season 4, Episode 2. Oh, my poor L. Poor, sweet baby Eleven. <laughs> Let's get into this. To my disappointment, we open on a flashback to Hopper's death, except he didn't die. Apparently, his survival is as simple as it is stupid. In the aftermath of the explosion, Joyce just, like, neglected to look over the ledge and spot his body, and I just... I don't have to point out how fucking unsatisfying that is, right? There's not even any sci-fi mumbo-jumbo about something upside-downy happening to him before the Russians got their hands on him. Joyce just legit leaves him there. It's painfully stupid, and the less said about it, the better, so let's move on, shall we? After the opening credits, Max wakes from more nightmares and gets out of bed to take more pills, but her morning routine is interrupted by a parade of cop cars peeling into the trailer park. Eddie's uncle came home to find Chrissy's brutalized body, and the injuries on her corpse leave the cops rightfully horrified. On to California, where Argyle, Jonathan, Will, and Eleven wait for Mike's plane to touch down. Jonathan was apparently hoping that Nancy would show up to surprise him, but we'll deal with that nonsense later. Instead, let's focus on the joy that Will and Al are sharing here. They couldn't possibly be more excited over the idea of seeing Mike in a minute, and it's really heartbreaking. I don't really give a fuck what anybody else thinks at this point, honestly, because it's pretty clear to me that Will has definitely got a crush on Mike. He and Elle have such similar excitement over his arrival because they have pretty similar feelings towards him, except unfortunately for the fact that Mike is only romantically interested in one of them, and to Will's incredibly obvious and heart-wrenching disappointment, that one is not him. Mike matches Eleven's energy, kissing her and hugging her and giving her a hand-picked bouquet of flowers, and then completely rejects Will's attempt to hug him, which makes Will deflect on the subject of the painting that he had obviously meant to be his reunion gift toward Mike. And I just... My little Polly heart hurts, you guys. I want to give Will such a big sister hug here. This shit just made me want to cry. Not that Elle is honestly doing much better. She's lying to Mike, pretending that she's living this wonderful, popular California girl lifestyle, and it turns into a point of contention between her and Will pretty quickly. Will is protective of his friend slash crush, and I'd say it's his jealousy that prevents him from giving Elle the understanding she really deserves. Elle is not lying here for the sake of deception. Elle is lying to cope with the disaster that her life has turned into. But Mike's oblivious, and he's not picking up on any of the subtext that's happening here, and Will is just so goddamn sad and awkward that I could scream, and have I mentioned that this whole thing just makes my heart hurt? But then we find out that Murray is also in California now, and that makes me happy. He is a batshit delight, and I look forward to whatever shenanigans he's going to get up to with Joyce. First, though, it's back to Robin and Steve in Hawkins. Robin is hella overthinking things, babbling on and on and on and on about her crush and her nerves, and she's got this ridiculous little joke about how if she and Steve could just, like, combine into a single person, they could absolutely sweep Robin's crush off her feet, which seems like the kind of thing that, like, in a comedy would set up some kind of I'll feed you flirty lines through an earpiece so you can flirt with her successfully by using my words that kind of nonsense scene. But given that we're definitely not doing that in this show, I don't know, just imagine me in the background of this scene scream whispering, why don't you both date her like a lunatic? But I fear that whatever actually happens in this particular plotline is going to be a lot less happy than that. Like, Robin is going to try to date this girl and she'll turn out to have a crush on Steve or something like that. Please, please spare me from that outcome. 
Elsewhere in Hawkins, Lucas is experiencing his first hangover, and call me a prude, but I think 14 is way too young to be drinking to the point of a hangover? But Lucas and the rest of his team have bigger problems than post-party headaches at this point. No sooner did they find out that an unnamed Hawkins student was murdered than the cops show up to interrogate the captain of the basketball team, who is a young conservative right out of central casting if ever there was one. I shouldn't at all be surprised by the turn he takes in this episode, but perhaps I'm only caught off guard because of how genuinely pleased I was to see them subverting my expectations in the previous episode. Because the Duffer brothers at this point are leaning hard into jocks versus nerds. With a heaping helping of satanic panic and the shadow of impending mob violence for added flavor. And I cannot tell you how disappointed I am by that swerve into the stereotypical. I was so tickled during the previous episode by the line that Lucas was being allowed to walk. He was choosing between basketball and D&D, yes, but there was no implication at that point that it was going to be a zero-sum choice. There was no implication that by choosing basketball he was giving up on being a nerdy kid who likes to play fantasy games. The implication instead was that he was going to be allowed to contain multitudes, which was extremely refreshing and very promising. But no, we're doing nerds are an oppressed minority and jocks are violent psychos, and I am just so over that nonsense. And by the way, if you're going to deal with satanic panic, you need to handle that shit with serious deafness and consideration and respect, especially since the bullshit concept of satanic ritual abuse has come back full force within the batshit crazy QAnon movement. Anyway. At the high school, Nancy and her squirrely friend Fred are on the case. I still don't know how I feel about Fred. I find him either incredibly grating or incredibly endearing, depending on what he's doing and saying in any given scene. But unfortunately, his attempt to be Nancy's journalistic sidekick goes even worse than Jonathan's attempt did last season, because Fred's poor scrawny ass ends up gruesomely dead. But that's later. For now, Max has made it to Dustin's house with news. She recognized the clothes on the corpse, and so she knows it's Chrissy who was found dead in Eddie's house, and she gets in a fight with Dustin over whether or not Eddie might have killed or hurt Chrissy himself. So let's pause for a minute to sit in the reality of what is happening in this scene. Dustin thinks that because he is friends with Eddie, it means that Eddie couldn't have possibly done anything violent. Dustin knows him better than that. And, as Max insists, that is fully fucking wrong. Let's look at this logically, shall we? Turn off your knee-jerk hashtag not all men bullshit for a minute, and if you can't be fucked to even do that much, then this is not the podcast for you. So, Max specifically brings up the case of Ted Bundy, whose whole thing was that he abducted, raped, murdered, and then raped the corpses of women who thought he was nice and harmless and couldn't possibly hurt them. I mean, fuck, how many times have we all heard people legitimately, not ironically responding to someone's arrest with, but he seemed like such a nice guy? Spoiler alert for the idiots in the audience, abusers don't want you to know that they're abusive until they have you trapped in a situation that allows them to abuse you without consequence. Abusers are two-faced to the core. They have a public persona that they show to the world, and they save their violent side for their victims, which is why many of them, like John Wayne Gacy, pretend to have literal multiple personalities when they get caught. The list of killers, rapists, and other criminals who seemed normal goes on and on into infinity. Countless congregations have been fooled by religious leaders who turned out to be raping vulnerable adults or molesting children. Countless women and many men have discovered to their horror that their partners, the loves of their lives, were serial killers, serial rapists, kidnappers, or pedophiles. It's incredibly common to talk to people who discovered that their best friend or their funny co-worker or the big brother they always idolized or who the fuck ever has actually been like downloading child porn 
porn or beating their partner or drugging and raping people or whatever else. No one thinks that the people they care for could ever do something awful because everyone wants to pretend that the villains of the real world wear their villainy on their sleeves. It is a point of pride for people to pretend that they could see through someone's attempted deception. I would never get abused by a partner because I wouldn't date an abusive man. Sorry, that is not how it works. My kids would never get molested by an uncle because I would know if my brother were a pedo. Sorry, not how it works. My best friend would never date rape a girl at a party because I would never be friends with a violent misogynist. That's not how it works. At the end of the day, people hide their guilt from the world. They don't show it to you unless they think you share it or they can use it against you. You can never really know what is inside someone's head. So when Dustin aggressively insists that Eddie, who he has known for what, six months, couldn't possibly have killed Chrissy under any circumstances, he is fundamentally wrong. When he acts like Max is being unreasonable for arguing with him and trying to get him to consider the possibility, he is fundamentally wrong. And when the show seems to pretty firmly fucking co-sign that Dustin is right and Max is being unreasonable, well, that shit is just downright irresponsible. It's gross, and it's wrong. How easy would it have been to just let Dustin fucking consider the possibility that a man he likes might not be a good guy, and then get proof later that he's not? Because that, that reality, that people can seem like they're great guys and turn out to not be, is something we all need to keep in mind. All the time. Period. Hashtag me too. Anyway, Max and Dustin realize that if they want the truth of what happened between Chrissy and Eddie, they're going to have to talk to the one person who survived the encounter, which means that they're going to have to track down Eddie. And so, in spite of Dustin's mom's adorable protests, off they go. Elsewhere in California, Murray and Joyce are bickering over the Hopper ransom note that Joyce got in the mail. She insists that it's got to be real, and Murray, bless his heart, brought the cumbersome 80s tech necessary to help her get to the truth of the whole thing. When she calls the ransomer, he helps her record the call, even though he strongly suspects that the whole thing is a trap. And you know what? I'm committing myself to this. I ship Murray and Joyce. I don't actually think either of them is interested in the other, no, but I want them to be best friends at minimum. I love their dynamic, though I am still a bit in mourning for Alexi, I've gotta admit. Now, from here we get some flashbacks to confirm for the audience what happened to Hopper, and again, I cannot pretend I care. I'm sorry, I know I'm in the extreme minority here, but I really don't like the guy. I thought he was tolerable the first two seasons, and season three destroyed him for me. I can't stand him. I was so pleased to have him removed from the story, and now he's back, and I would have preferred that he'd stayed dead, and I really don't need these scenes, and um, I guess I'm just gonna jump right past them, because I don't like them at all. So now, it is time for Elle, Mike, and Will to have an awkward date at the skate rink. Elle is all pleased with herself, but Will tries to confront her about her white lies. Not that he goes about it well, he's trying to be kind to Mike, but all he really manages is to be kind of carelessly unkind to Elle, who's trying not to cry when Mike comes back. And it's not that I don't know Will, too, is suffering painfully here. Whether or not it's supposed to be canon that he's got unrequited romantic feelings for Mike, he's clearly got hurt feelings in regards to him. Mike rejected his hug, Mike's attention is all on Elle, and Will openly admits that he feels like a third wheel. 
but at the end of the day, Mike is right. I said something in the previous episode about having to meet people more than halfway sometimes, and I think, unfortunately, that this is where Will is at in his relationship. If he wants to have the close relationship with Mike that he so clearly craves, he needs to meet Mike more than halfway at this point. All of Mike's attention is being eaten up by Elle, so if Will wants something, he's gonna have to demand it. He needs to be the one initiating contact with Mike. He needs to be the one writing Mike letters like Elle has been doing. And it's not like I don't get why he isn't doing that. He doesn't want to have to chase his best friend. He wants Mike to be the one chasing him. He wants Mike to show him how much he cares about their relationship. He wants Mike to be the one to bridge the gap. But it does not appear that Mike is going to do that. If Will wants this relationship to flourish again, the sad fact is that it looks like he's going to have to be the one to nurture it. And if he'd rather take Mike's lack of friendship maintenance as a rejection to the point that he too lets their friendship die, well, at that point, that's on Will. At the end of the day, the death of a relationship is a two-way street. A relationship isn't dead until both people give up. Speaking of not giving up, though, there's bad hair Angela to make things worse. It's not clear yet what she's going to do, but oh boy, is she butthurt at the thought of Elle having a boyfriend who actually likes her and makes her happy. And Mike, who has the emotional and situational awareness of a butterfly, is unfortunately not going to be much help. Not at least before it's too late. Back in Hawkins, Max and Dustin roll up on Steve and Robin while they're trying to work. They hope to track down Eddie via the video store records, and elsewhere in town, Fred is hinting at an interest in Nancy that I don't think Nancy at all notices. And like, I don't ship it by any stretch of the imagination, especially now that Fred's fucking dead, but at least if Nancy had noticed, it would have been more interesting than the long, agonizing death of her relationship with Jonathan. But no, Fred is hallucinating, which means that he is the monster's, Vecna's, I suppose, next victim. Apparently, Fred was involved in a lethal car crash last year, and I'm not entirely sure what exactly the circumstances were, so I'm not positive how much sympathy I should be offering Fred here. If he killed someone as the driver in a hit-and-run, I won't go so far as to say he deserves this death, but I'm not going to be particularly broken up about it either. If he was the passenger in a hit-and-run incident, that's slightly better. And if the circumstances were something other than that, like maybe he was the driver of this car that we see later, well, then I do kind of feel bad for the guy. An accident is an accident at the end of the day. Have some empathy. Especially towards a child. What is this guy? 16? 17? Anyway, cut to California. Jonathan is hanging out with Argyle, and it's a pretty useless scene. The gist is that Jonathan secretly thought Nancy was going to show up despite telling him otherwise, and that he was relieved when she didn't. Because Jonathan has been lying about his college plans. He's going to a local school, not the school where Nancy's going, and he's sure that an inevitable breakup is in their future. He is convinced that if they stay together, if they follow the stereotypical path of marriage and kids, that he's just going to end up making her and his hypothetical family as miserable as his dad always made Joyce and Will and him. And it's all just a lot of words to not say what the problem really is, that Jonathan and Nancy's relationship ended emotionally sometime last season, and neither of them has worked up the courage to just admit it yet. And from that mess, we head into an even bigger one. Angela rolls up on Elle and company and pretends to flirt with Mike to upset Jane, and then forces her to skate with them, leaving the boys behind. 
Mike, the buffoon, fails to notice that anything is amiss, even when Will bolts up from the table with blatant concern all over his face. And I think my feelings about Will this season might have crystallized right here. He knows what is wrong. It is all over his face that he knows he should be doing something about what is happening. But he holds himself back from helping Elle, the same way that he is holding himself back from his friendship with Mike. What this poor boy needs, or at least needs to try, is to lean into both of these relationships. He needs to lean into helping Elle, and he needs to lean into reconnecting with Mike. I really think that Will is the one here with the power to fix this shit. Or at least he could have fixed things before Angela's bullying and Eleven's violent vengeance made everything unimaginably worse. After a few minutes with Murray and Joyce, and then another few with Hopper, the military arrives in Hawkins, and I feel like that can't be good? Elsewhere, at the video store, Robin finds a lead on Eddie's whereabouts, and at the trailer park, Fred wanders away while Nancy talks to Eddie's uncle. Eddie's uncle has got a theory about Chrissy's death. He certainly doesn't think it was Eddie's fault, but it might have something to do with a family annihilator named Victor Creel. He killed his wife and his kids, leaving behind corpses rumored to be in a state very similar to Chrissy's, and as far as Mr. Munson knows, Creel is still in Penhurst Asylum. But if Victor Creel is involved, his imprisonment isn't keeping him from Fred. Nancy can't find him, and perhaps that's for the best. Otherwise, she would be just as traumatized as Eddie is now, because Fred is in the final countdown to his incredibly gruesome death. And I hardly think that Nancy would have been able to do anything to help him. From there, we get more of Hopper, Murray, and Joyce. They talk to the mysterious Enzo, who they reason must be a Russian prison guard, and Joyce is going to get him the ransom money that he's asking for, even though Enzo neglected to offer any proof that Hopper is still alive. Now, imagine, if you will, if this all turns out to be like a shaggy dog story. They go through all this trouble, and we see all of these flashbacks, and then we end up finding out that Hopper, like, died shortly before the season started, or something like that. Hopper fans would certainly not find that funny, but I kinda would. Anyway, at the skate rink, Mike and Will have it out while Elle hides and cries in the aftermath of her humiliation. It's not the most productive argument, and it's certainly not going to help Mike, given that he's got what appears to be a damn negative EQ at this point, but I hope it's a first little step for Will toward healing a bit. I want that poor little bastard to be happy. Elle, however, is really going through it right now. She has found a private spot, but unfortunately, it is a private spot with a window. She can see Angela and the other bullies mocking her from her vantage point, and she decides to do something about it. It's not terribly misguided at first, though obviously it's going to be fruitless. She asks for an apology from her bullies, and she is, of course, resoundingly rejected. And then Angela goes full Draco Malfoy, mocking Elle for having a dead dad. And while I know it reflects poorly on me, I will admit that I was fully cheering as Elle grabs someone's skate from them, marches toward Angela, and splits that girl's fucking face. You know what? Fuck the crowd for staring at her like she's just done something horrific. Fuck Angela's caterwauling. Fuck Mike's what did you do? And fuck the flashback to the prologue with Brenner. Y'all, this is precisely what I was afraid of when I saw that goddamn prologue. Now, I vomited my thoughts all about this into my reaction video already, so I don't know how much territory I want to retread here. And for the uninformed, you can get my full-length reaction videos on my $5 Patreon tier. But let me put it this way. I talked a lot in the previous episode of the podcast about how much side-eye I was giving that prologue already. It doesn't really come right out and say that Elle caused or earned or deserved the treatment that she got from Brenner, but that is definitely an implication left by the scene. And 
That's absolutely reprehensible. A child never causes, earns, or deserves abuse. No one does. But the implication is there, and one hopes it's a misdirect, but it is made worse by juxtaposing this scene of her knee-jerk violent vengeance with what appears to be a scene of her enacting a literal massacre as a small child. Now, don't get me wrong, like I said, I think this is a misdirect, and I think exploring Elle's potential anger management issues is a great idea for the story. Elle has long since used her powers to violently and aggressively put bullies back in their place, so to speak, and the show has always treated this as positive behavior. Using the loss of Elle's powers as an opportunity to explore the notion of whether or not meeting bullying with equal and opposite force is really a good character trait or not... That's promising. That has the potential to be a very interesting, awesome story. Instead, though, I'm a little worried because I'm kind of getting season four Sam Winchester vibes. I'm getting retcon. I'm getting she has anger management problems and doesn't know right from wrong and can't be trusted and needs to be controlled however necessary vibes. Maybe it's just like post-supernatural stress disorder, a lingering trauma in the back of my mind from dealing with the lunacy endemic in that fandom, but I just get a really bad vibe off of seeing Mike's what did you do spliced with Brenner's what have you done and I am wary as fuck about where this is going. I fear the show is treading into very murky waters indeed. But we haven't yet hit the end, so let's get these final scenes out of the way. Robin, Max, Dustin, and Steve, who is still shining even though he's being given practically nothing to do. They have arrived at, quote, Reefer Rick's house. The less said about how they tracked him down, the better, because it's almost as insultingly stereotypical as the whole jocks want to kill the nerds bit from earlier. Anyway, they ultimately find Eddie hanging out in Rick's garage, lurking under a tarp inside a boat and ready to spring out and assault Steve when Steve gets too close. And Eddie is being written ridiculously in this scene, if we're all being honest with each other. Maybe Eddie and Steve have history we don't know about or something, but Eddie's take on trauma here seems to be act like a frightened animal. He's practically non-verbal for a long stretch and acting like he's bearing the weight of the entire world on his shoulders. And I'm not gonna lie, we are four seasons into this shit at this point and I don't have a lot of patience for newbies who can't cut it. Like, he's really kind of acting like he has combat PTSD. Like, World War II level combat PTSD. And baby, you didn't go through something like that. You saw something horrific, something you don't understand. Like, I get it. Chrissy's death was worse than any death we've seen so far, but seriously. I only have so much sympathy. There's too many characters at this point for me to provide every random idiot with all of my compassion and my empathy. But of course, we need him for the story, I suppose, because the show insists upon filtering everything upside-down related through the lens of D&D characters, and so we can only understand our new villain by seeing him as the Vecna character that Eddie introduced in the previous episode. An undead creature of great power, Dustin calls him. A spellcaster, a dark wizard, and, I assume, somehow related to Victor Creel. Perhaps Victor Creel himself. I just... I don't know. We're two episodes in. There's nine episodes total. Seven out so far. And where I'm at right now is that I kind of have some reservations about this. What I loved so much about Stranger Things and its monstrous upside down was the eldritch nature of the whole thing. And like, I don't know, going humanoid and bringing in a family annihilator killer feels like we're really losing the Lovecraft of it all. And that makes me really sad. But here's hoping this is going in a fun direction regardless. So... Like I said, two two episodes down, five more to go in this batch, and then like the better part of a month before the last two, which I have heard are going to be like movie length, which is certainly interesting. Um, 
I heard something from one of the creators, I think, like a headline that came out a month or, I don't know, like a month before the show dropped. It was a headline saying something to the effect of uh, season four is getting split into two because it actually has enough content for two seasons or something like that. Um, so I'm kind of wondering at this point if we're going to do like, I don't know, wrap up a wrap up a primary thread in these seven episodes, introduce some bigger threat as we wrap that part up. And like maybe the last two episodes are going to deal with some bigger thing. Like we're going to find out that there's maybe we're going to take care of Vecna in the first seven episodes. And then we'll find out that like there's something bigger behind Vecna and we fight that thing in the past in the last two episodes. I don't know. It's very interesting. Like I said, I am worried about the direction that Elle's character is going in. I am, you know, not willing to put myself down as like truly, truly worried yet. I have enough faith after three years in these writers. Um, as far as I can recall, I don't believe that they've ever made any significant missteps, in my opinion. Um, I know a lot of people disliked the difference in tone of season three, but I had no problem with it. I Honestly, season three is my favorite of the show. Um, so, you know, it, we're going to see how this goes. I am very excited for this to be, you know just as much, just as beloved as the previous three seasons were for me. Um, but, of course, in the very beginning of any, you know, new season, when they're setting things up, there is ample room for anything to happen, anything at all. And some of the things that they're setting up right now give me a little tiny bit of worry. Getting into satanic panic stuff is always a bit tricky. Um, trying to deal with, you know, a magical person who has anger problems is always a bit tricky. I have seen it done horrifically in the past. Um, supernatural looking at you. And here's hoping that this goes, you know, much better than that. Um, so yeah. I'm really excited to see how the rest of this season shapes up. I don't think I want to make any concrete predictions or anything like that. Um, I'm trying to remember if there's any dis any any spoilers that I need to disclaim. I don't think I've seen anything. No, I think I'm good. So, all in all, that was my coverage of episode two of Stranger Things season four. I am going to be back next week on Wednesday with my coverage of episode three. Um, by the time you're hearing this, I will probably have finished watching the entire season, or at least these first seven episodes. Um, so, I don't know. I really hope by the time you're hearing this, I will have seen it all and will really have enjoyed it. Um, as for you, I hope that you are enjoying this episode of the podcast. I hope you're enjoying my coverage. If you are enjoying my Stranger Things coverage, you may be interested in checking out my Dark coverage or my Archive 81 coverage. Um, in the future, I, on this feed, I will be covering uh, Vampire Night and Castlevania and the French horror show Marianne. Um, Alternately, of course, Stranger Things Season 4 is going to be coming out week after week in, for the foreseeable future. Um, and starting very soon, I will be covering Season 3 of Umbrella Academy. If you are interested in helping me decide what it is that I'm going to be covering after those properties, however, you are going to want to head to my Patreon, where for $1 per month you get access to occasional polls helping me determine what it is that I watch. 
Alternately, for $5 per month on the Patreon, you can get access to all of my reaction videos. Um, those would be first-time reactions, full-length, unedited mostly, uh, of, you know, my first-time reaction to everything that I'm watching. So, if you're interested in any of that, go check it out. If you are not interested, then head over to your podcatcher of choice, leave a rating or a review. Honesty is key. Um, if you are not interested in that, you could talk about the show on social media, or you could tell a friend about it. Either one of those things would also be very much appreciated. Or if you are not interested in doing any of that, I perfectly understand. I just hope that you come back next week to listen to my next episode about Stranger Things. And as always, thank you so much for listening.